I think the one thing I'd say about skills gap is everyone needs to keep learning and accept that technology always moves on. So you're never going to have all the digital skills you need. And frankly, technology never plays fair. It always brings unexpected surprises. Welcome to episode three of the second season of Start at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. So our podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. We have a fantastic interview for you today with Liz Williams, MBE, Chief Executive of Future.Now. And it's a really excellent discussion, one that we've been really looking forward to sharing with you. One thing that we discussed with Liz was the growing issue of data poverty in the UK, which means thousands of people don't have access to all the mobile data that they might need to live in today's internet-enabled world. And interestingly, last week also saw the UK reach record levels of broadband use, which was largely put down to the launch of both the new Xbox Series X and the release of the new Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War game, with game files of over 130 gigabytes being downloaded up and down the country, there was an adverse effect on download speeds, and we certainly witnessed this in Team Thomas Towers. And this week also seems the release of the new PlayStation 5, so we can probably expect a repeat of that this week too. Another story that caught the eye this week, uh, and sticking with video games, Zoe, was the news today that video gaming may actually benefit our mental health rather than harm it. So this is a really interesting news story that caught my eye this, this morning as a new study from Oxford University, which has suggested that rather than, you know, spending a lot of time on, on games and it being something that's isolating and not great for mental health, the opposite is true, that it's actually really good for your mental health and your well-being. Uh, so I wanted to mention this because as someone who doesn't do any gaming uh, I'd be really interested to, to hear your perspective Paul on whether you agree with this study and also whether there's something here about what leaders can learn from from gaming and and the whole kind of you know nature of decision making and doing something as a as a collective exercise oh there's there's a topic and there's some really interesting stuff that we could delve into in that. But I think on the, the, the long and the short of it is that I feel that video games have always been vilified in the press forever and ever, as long as far back as you can remember. And remember when the um, the first Grand Theft Auto titles came out and it was insinuated that people were going to sort of take to the streets and start uh, with, with guns and start uh, stealing cars and things like that. And you know, that never really actually happened. And my kids, and I think your kids as well, have, have got a relationship with video games that is fairly healthy at the moment. We we sort of you know restrict the, the time that they're allowed to spend on them, but the games all come with things like age rating and things like that. So you can be fairly safe that some of the games that they're playing are sort of fit for purpose and helpful for them. The, crucially, I think that the two games in this study were Animal Crossing, which is a Nintendo sort of farming. You, you sort of look after a, a character and, and move them around an island and you have social interactions. And some of those interactions are online, some of them are offline. But crucially, it's a very sort of feel-good, moves-at-a-slow-pace kind of a game. And another one, which is a, a shooter game, which is called Plants vs. Zombies. Although it sounds horrific <laughs> it's not actually it's quite um, it's one of the most sort of safe uh, shooters so there was a study done on those two games and I think the study also talks about actual game times so what they were doing is they were interviewing their subjects at the time that they were playing or just after they played the game so really understanding games as a leisure activity not as just a, a way that we consume time 
So I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot to, to bear out. It will be interesting to see when they delve into other titles. As I said, you know, this this week sees the release or last week saw the release of the new Call of Duty game. You know, I happen to, to think that that might have an adverse effect, certainly on young kids playing it. I always sort of said that any computer game where you get extra points for shooting people in the head, it's probably something that you probably don't want to hand over to your kids. But I think games like that and some of the um, the activities that happen within those games is probably something that we might need to be a bit more cautious about. And I also think the idea of the games, and this is an interesting line in the article, where it talks about playing a game because it's fun The paper contrasts intrinsic enjoyment, playing a game because it's fun, with extrinsic, more concerning behaviours, such as feeling bullied into playing either by other players or the game mechanics themselves. So I think there is something really interesting in that that I think needs to be explored more because a lot of these games do have hooks that pull people in. don't want to say exclusively kids, but I do find that the kids come home from school and talk about the latest games that their friends are playing and why can't they play them and can we get them? I think there's a sort of a wider issue around kids being drawn into games because they feel they ought to be playing. What do you think your kids, I've seen them playing Minecraft. Yeah, they absolutely love Minecraft and they're obsessed at the moment with a game called Among Us. I don't know whether your kids are playing that, but it's basically about, there's this, I think there's some kind of imposter and you find out whether you're the imposter or not at the start of the the game and then you have to kind of change tactics accordingly and whilst I'm obviously not a gamer what I have found a really good challenge because I have preconceptions about gaming as well I suppose is that it's, it's actually really sweet playing seeing them playing games like that together because it's it's very social and they're constantly talking to each other about it saying no get over here no you need to do this and it's made me question my assumptions about the, the way it actually can be really good for decision making and and resilience and just seeing them chat to each other while while they're doing it it, it feels extremely sociable rather than the, the not sociable um so i think this study is a really interesting first step in getting people to rethink their ideas about gaming my, myself included and i'm really excited to see what the researchers discover next yeah and one thing to throw into the mix is obviously the amount of screen time that our children are getting during the the, the lockdown and the pandemic because there are those are easy ways to keep the kids quiet whilst we're all trying to work so i think um their access to games and their ability to to sort of you know their their time playing them is is probably increasing over this period so it's good to know that there are the the benefits teamwork collaboration as you said all those things that that play into to the actual gaming experience that just don't get reported in the press so i think it's a, it's a fairly good news article for me and the other thing you wanted to touch on sorry so another story that caught my eye this week is obviously the big news of last week uh, was biden winning the election Woo. um Woohoo! Uh, and there was a really interesting news story that popped up, which was about this online sexual harassment task force, which he has committed to setting up, which I think looks really interesting. So it's basically going to be a task force on online harassment and abuse. It's going to be looking at how uh, social media platforms and also federal and state governments and schools can actually flag and prevent online harassment and also I guess wider forms of online harm as well such as threats revenge porn and clearly there's very much a focus here on preventing uh, violence against women 
which is great. I also think this is a really interesting step change in how a a new president could be dealing with the internet and also Silicon Valley, whereas someone like Trump, clearly very individualistic, could turn a whole news cycle with his tweets. And obviously his tweets are actually being censored at the moment in some cases by Twitter saying, oh, this is this is not true. This, I think, marks a really interesting step change in how the, the new US government could actually a- a- approach this whole topic of dealing with the internet, protecting the people that, that use it, and potentially a whole different relationship with Silicon Valley. So it will be very interesting to see how this turns out once Biden gets into the White House in January. One thing that I think is going to be really interesting is just seeing how the president's relationship with Twitter, because he won't be able to approach it in any way near the same way as, as it's been treated in the last four or five years. So I wonder whether he'll whether they'll urge caution and keep him off it or whether there'll be a lot more going through the official POTSA uh, account. I don't know. I mean, his whole campaign has been about showing how he is different to Trump. He's a different character. He's a different kind of leader. He's got very different ideas and values. So I think the manifestation of that is partly going to be through his social media presence, isn't it? Yeah. And going back to, I guess, what we've seen with Barack Obama, the way that he was treated, he treated social media, you could always tell when it was him versus when it was the aides in the background who were, who were sort of speaking on his behalf. And I just think the way that Barack Obama has held himself on social media ever since has just been an example to to all other leaders of you know, how to do it and how to do it in a measured way and how never to get carried away with it. Absolutely. So now for our interview with Liz Williams, MBE, Chief Executive of Future.now. Really hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. We are very excited to welcome Liz Williams to the podcast this morning. Liz is a long-term campaigner on the importance of everyone benefiting from digital technology. She is CEO of Future.now, a business-to-business consortium which focuses on motivating people and businesses to boost their digital skills to thrive in digital UK. And that's never more needed now than it is right this year. Prior to that, she led BT Group's digital and social inclusion strategies and cross-sector collaborations with government, civil society and other leading businesses. Liz is chair of the Good Things Foundation, the UK's largest charity focused on supporting digitally and socially excluded people to improve their lives through digital. And she's also a trustee of the London Transport Museum. She sits on the board of the government's Digital Skills Partnership and was appointed as a Social Mobility Commissioner by the UK government in 2018. Liz was awarded an MBE in the 2019 Birthday Honours for Services to Digital Literacy and Social Inclusion. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks so much for coming on today. It feels so timely that you are here to talk about these very pressing issues. We're sitting here right in the thick of the pandemic and there's so many issues around digital that have come up because of that and also all the massive changes we have seen during COVID-19. So we're really looking forward to digging into all of that with you here today. So let's find out a, a bit more about the day job, as it were. So we'd love to hear more about the problem that Future.now is trying to solve. Yeah, thanks, Zoe. As you say, it's a bit of a pressing problem, actually. We're very focused on how do we accelerate digital upskilling across the UK at scale and doing that through coordinated industry action. And the reason why that's important is today there is about 17 million adults that don't have the essential digital skills for life and work. 
that's a, that's a framework of skills that the government originally set out about in 2015 and it was uplifted in 2018. So it's a, not a new thing. And they're not high end skills. So the, you know, that those 17 million adults that haven't got those skills for life and work, that means, you know, it's not about coding. It's not about AI. It's not about, you know, robotics. It's none of that stuff. It's about actually being able to check your payslip online. It's about being able to join a Zoom call like we're doing, or it's about applying for a job online. It's those kind of basic skills. And, you know, so there's 17 million people without those. There's about 9 million people that are unable to use the internet without any device, without assistance. They, they can't get online. And yet only 23% of adults have had any digital skills training from their employer. And, you know, you put those two pieces together and you go, well, maybe that's not really very surprising that, that people haven't got the skills if we haven't trained them. So that's what we're all about at, at future.now is, is how do you accelerate that pace of digital upskilling, you know, working with industry and really making a change and shining a light on the issue and encouraging people to take action. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think what the work you're doing is is so timely and, and much needed right now. And you and I have talked quite a lot about the digital divide in the UK and how that's become such a pressing issue during the pandemic. Can you tell us more about the scale of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a divide anymore. I, I actually think it's it's a chasm because as as each of us has acquired and improved our digital skills over this period, and you know, I don't know about you, but I, there were points where I, I don't think I could have survived without a digital connection. It was the thing that enabled me to work. It was the thing that enabled me to connect with my parents, you know, who are a few hours away. All of those things, digital enabled me to do that. And yet there are so many people that don't have access to technology. Either they don't have a connection or they can't have it. They don't have a device or they don't have the skills. Making sure that we, we are able to genuinely live in a digital society where everybody is able to benefit, I think is really important. So going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, you've got that, you know, 9 million people that are unable to use that, use the internet. And that's in a, you know, that's quite a large portion of the UK. And yet when it comes to solutions, people assume. So for example, at the moment, you know, if you want to go and book a table to go and have a drink, you pretty much need to scan an app. And if you haven't got a smartphone, suddenly, what does that mean for inclusion? And don't get me started on other things that are perhaps more fundamental, like applying for jobs or benefits or the such like. That's true. We were having a conversation the other week um, about the rise of the the re rise of the QR code um, and how people sort of stand in front of those for ages with their phones going, well, what do I do with this? Yeah. And, and I mean, it's it, it's so important because it's about being able to get a job. It's about the UK's productivity. It's about economic prosperity. You know, how can we be a digital nation if if we're leaving so many people behind? And it, it's so much about inclusion as well. And, I, you know, I just see it as, as, as such a core part of how we how we live and work now. And yet somehow the way we approach digital is different to other skills. So you don't turn around to young people in the UK and say, well, you've been born in the UK, you've grown up in an English speaking society, so therefore you automatically be able to read English and write English and do all these things. And yet somehow with digital skills, we, we think that people are going to require them through osmosis rather than potentially training those skills in, you know, particularly with young people, people kind of use this term of digital natives and they're, they're not, they're just people that, you know, they know what they can do with digital. I had a brilliant quote the other day, someone turned around and said, don't try and get a young person to do something on PowerPoint. It's the equivalent of asking your grand to record a video on TikTok. And it's true. Everybody has their own bit of digital, but they don't have everything. And therefore you need to think about what the training is. And for some people, they have nothing. Absolutely. And it's that 
gap in provision or the the, the chasms you you mentioned as well that's such a challenge can I ask a, another question there about digital skills and this particular aspect of, of digital literacy is very much on my mind with uh, thinking about the, the secondary school. We're looking at a number of different schools at the moment because my, my eldest child will, will be going there in a, a couple of years. Do you think that we need to be more um, ambitious as a, as a society here in the UK about what we expect from digital skills? So obviously, you talk there about making sure that those nine million people acquire those 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 basic skills um but thinking about what the future could look like for all of our children you know i'm imagining that lots of them be working things like robotics and doing jobs that we can't even imagine now are there certain things that the, the education system should be doing as well in order to help create those new digital pioneers of tomorrow I think that's a whole separate podcast. You should, you should definitely, it's a series of podcasts on that. But I, I absolutely think so. I mean, if you look at education today, actually, it's not that different what we teach people to perhaps what I learn. And I'm, I'm quite old, actually. And, you know, I think we've actually got quite an analog education system, whereas actually you can get knowledge. You just have to ask Alexa to learn something to be able to tell you that piece of information. But actually the ability to really know, you know, have the digital savviness and that, you know, those kind of skills that will really stand you instead for those jobs. Because actually, if you look at where jobs are at the moment, the tech sector has got the biggest amount of growth in stuff. But actually they said they haven't got people with the skills. But if you haven't got people with foundation skills, how can they grow up to have the higher end skills and have the aspiration to see those as being their careers? So I absolutely think we need quite a radical overhaul of how we educate. I mean, I heard a really brilliant thing the other day. Google apparently in the States have just said that there's a there's a course that they've acknowledged. They said it's, you know, it's great. And they've said it's it's I think it costs about three hundred dollars this course. But they've said at the out at the end of it, and it, it's all about high-end digital skills. If you if you go through that course, actually they'll treat you as being the same as if you've got a degree and they'll, you know, they'll pretty much pathway you into a role because there's such a shortage so you know I think you know trying to get that that whole area of how we inspire young people to really see digital as their future and not just a smartphone at the end of their their arm but actually part of their future and their future career so important the Google part of the, part of the problem as well, because we've, you know, this is very early stages. My son's been in senior school from beginning of September to now mid-October. So in six weeks, I've seen him, he, he's using Google Classroom. They've got Chromebooks. Um, you know, that's that's their entire sort of view on, on you know, how they how they access lessons, how they do homework and all that sort of stuff. But already I start to see that creeping in, that he'll ask Google for an answer or he'll ask um, Alexa for a, for an answer, and they only scrape the surface because you had that age old problem that we've had in the internet world for years and years and years that everyone's fighting to be on page one. But if every of Google results, and if all these kids are, are getting access to is page one of Google, then they're not necessarily having the deeper dive uh, into the subjects that they're, they're they're researching. Without, I guess parent uh, or teachers who are uh, sort of forcing them down the pages, forcing them down into looking and researching. So we're, we're sort of just scraping the surface, I think. I think that's right, actually. And it's, it's a combination, isn't it? It's about, it's about soft and, and hard skills. Actually, those, the, the inquiring mind, the inquisitive nature, those are the skills that you need to have. So you don't just accept what's in front of you. And that's about, you know, to me, that's about being a confident digital citizen. What are those rounded skills that you need to be have to be able to thrive in this world that is powered by digital? And you can't just expect that Google is going to serve you the best and the right answer, but you have the ability to question it and, and challenge it. I think that's a really important point. And certainly for young people, such critical skills that business require from them going forward. 
and there's a danger they won't have those skills. Absolutely. There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? So coming back to this question about the the digital divide and the the impact that it's been having on our society during the pandemic, you've been involved in this fantastic initiative, Devices.Now. So we'd love to hear more about that and the impact that it's had. Yeah, it's um, something I'm really proud of, actually. It was a bit of a strategy pivot for us at Future.Now. Um, we've not really been involved with access, but as as we started to creep towards lockdown, and, you know, if you take yourself back to March, it, it was it was a creep, but it was actually a very rapid creep that we, we moved from, you know, talking about potentially locking down. I don't think anybody really understood what, what that might mean. And in my role at Good Things Foundation, I was talking to a number of the um, online centres, people that are actually there in the centres, in the community, helping people through their online journey. Journey. And what we were hearing was some really heartbreaking stories of people coming in worried about, you know, people that didn't have their own devices or people that were saying, you know, I'm, one of the stories I heard was about an old lady that came into one of the centres. She was in her 80s and um, she wanted to uh, put in a, uh, a prescription, a repeat prescription for her husband who was also in his 80s. And she, she didn't know how to do this electronically, but she knew how to put it into the chemist. But she was worried that by the time that the prescription was ready, we might be locked down. And because she was in her 80s, she wasn't going to be able to go and collect it. And one of the things that centre did was they actually showed her how to set it up so that, that, that she could get a regular delivery online. And it was those kind of things that we started to hear about, people that were genuinely, because they didn't have the, the, the ability to kind of just to turn over to digital systems. You know, a mother saying, you know, there's no baby milk in the shop. I don't, and I can't order it online. I don't know how to order it online. I don't know what to do. There were so many of those those cases that we heard. And what what devices dot now was was uh, you know bringing together the future dot now community. We're about a hundred employers and saying we need to get devices and connectivity and you know and training out for these people. And um, we raised. I mean, at the end, it was a, it was a, we closed the, the, the emergency campaign at the end of July. Um, we raised over £1.4 million. We got over 11,000 people connected. And that wasn't just about getting them connected with a device, but it was about getting them connected with a device, with data and with somebody that were there that would hold their hand through that process and be there to carry on. And that program is continuing. The Good Things Foundation are, you know, are, are continuing to manage that. And we've also taken everything we learned because one of the things you often find is you do an emergency response and then the learning stays with the people that were part of it. But all of that learning has been packaged up by our wonderful partners that nominate into a, a playbook called Reboot that community organisers can use to kind of run local schemes. So um, there was a lot of learning through that. And I have to say, it kept me going through lockdown with many long nights working on the programme. And the other thing that was really interesting about it is I said about those results. So 1.4 million pounds, 11,000 people got online. The people that ran that programme, none of us ever met face to face. And that speaks something about the power of digital to make something happen. I'm very proud of it. Wow, that's fantastic, Liz. Well done. This must have been really rewarding to be able to make a difference like that at a a time of so much need. It was, but I think what was most inspiring for me was the way that business rallied round. And, you know, everybody put, you know, 
competitive issues to one side. I mean, if you look at the organizations that make up devices, make up future.now, we have consultancy organizations that perhaps normally you wouldn't see cheek by jowl, but they are. We had Lloyds Banking Group nationwide, lots of organizations that are competitive that are coming together. And that's what I saw with devices.now was this massive groundswell of desire to do something. And it really taught me about if you've got a clear purpose and objectives, what you can do, how you can really make change. And I, I think actually 11,000 people is tip of the iceberg in terms of the issues out there, but actually that's 11,000 people. Every single one of them had a story and, and we learned a lot about, about those people along the way, some of the issues that they faced. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your your experience about that. And um, yeah, we'd love to hear um, any further the stories that, that come up uh, about those 11,000 people as, as you get more of them. Thinking about digital skills more broadly then, and we just talked there about employers, so what would you advise the, the leaders who listen to this podcast about how they can grow digital skills in their organisations? Yeah, I think, I think my first thing that I'd ask is be ambitious about your organisation's digital capabilities, but start from the foundations. Don't assume that people have got everything and don't expect people to acquire those skills by osmosis. I think the thing that you find is that everybody thinks everybody else understands digital everybody else can do it everybody's that bit better than you um so i think that's the first thing is don't don't assume that people have, have got it and and don't start with digital actually start with the thing that matters to people digital is is just the pathway it's the way of doing the thing it, it's not the thing itself um we did some research with oliver wyman um looking at digital motives and how do you increase motivations and absolutely the biggest thing that came through was smuggle digital almost don't mention the d word you know what is it you want to do how can digital help you do that so that's what i'd really encourage leaders to do is think about your organization don't assume people have got it look at the essential digital skills to start with and and just do a check really that that people are up to the thing but don't do it in a way that it feels like it's a um a negative thing you know it's like oh you know have you got oh you haven't got it oh that's a bit bad but more as an empowering thing so that's what I'd really say to organisations, be ambitious about your organisation's digital capabilities. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a great mantra. And thinking about uh, different types of organisations as, as well. So um, we know that there are organisations like the ones Paul and, and I run who listen to this podcast, who are small consultancy practices. Are there any ways that organisations like ours can support the great work you're doing at Future.now? Just doing what you're doing today is fantastic. You know, actually just shining a light on the issue and talking about it. Normalize it. Help us talk about rising up everybody's digital skills and make it normal for people to talk about the things that perhaps they can't do and they'd like to be able to do and and, and, and how people can help them. I mean, at Future.now, we invite every organization of every size to join us, although we're really, our scale impact, we think in our next year of action will be through large organizations, but we're not turning anybody away. And, you know, we're a free free organization to join. There's no, there's no kind of financial thing, but actually we ask everybody to make a really simple pledge and it's about building collective action. So, you know, coming together around it, empowering your workforce with their digital capabilities and then building the capabilities of others. And I think most organizations can buy into that. So, you know, doing, you do whatever you do best that means you can shine a light on the issue. 
Thank you. We will we will keep we will keep doing that and, and supporting the, the good work that you guys are doing. <laughs> and then thinking about the digital divide as well and the role that all of us can play and indeed government as well and, and other key stakeholders. Is there anything else? You've talked about skills, we've talked about training, we've talked about what employers can do. If I could wave a magic wand, what else would help close the gap? One of the things we discovered during um, the Devices.now campaign was this new issue of data poverty, where people were, you know, they might have a smartphone, they, they might be connected, but actually they're on a pay-as-you-go package and that data for them was precious. And what we found during lockdown was as people's need for data increased, for those people that were on pay-as-you-go, their ability to constantly top up, whether that was at McDonald's or the library or wherever they might be, that went away because everything shut. Um, and that issue of data poverty is something we really learned about. So um, we did we did a, we did some work with the centre around it, and we've just been looking at what other countries have done. So, for example, in Australia, they um, they have an amazing program where they do a lot more data gifting. So you know they collect to unused minutes, and consumers are able to donate. I think things like that are really important. Um, also, the um, telcos did a brilliant thing at the start of lockdown where they zero rated a lot of the a lot of the crucial sites so the nhs website they made that so it didn't have any data charges associated with it but that was a cost to them you know they they just bore that cost which is brilliant and so we shouldn't you know we shouldn't underestimate that but that whole thing about don't assume that because something online is online it's free and everybody can access it i think is something i'd really like people to think about and explore and understand more about how much data people really need for the essential things in life absolutely having access to devices and 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 data during the pandemic felt like such a privilege and and hearing stories like yours and the stories of the people that that you help um really brought that that home to paul and i I really like that idea of donating data as well, because I think um, I remember, I think it was in March or April, I'm a a Vodafone customer. Other mobile networks are available, of course. Um, But but they sent me a message saying um, unlimited data for a month. And of course, you know, you jump on top of that because you don't know what you're going to, to need. And I already have an ample data provision on my contract. But being able to give that to somebody that actually really needed it didn't even enter into the the thought process so I think that's a really nice idea I think I'll look into that in a bit more detail yeah I mean I don't think it's currently something we can do in the UK I mean I remember talking to one of the coffee shops who was saying you know this is things was opening up they were saying we're just going to stick our wi-fi code on at the door because we know that people are need it even though they they can't come in we're shut but actually they they need it that whole thing about about data and the role it plays it really opened my eyes um you know it's one of the things i learned through the pandemic was just that people talk about connectivity people talk about skills people kind of get the device thing but the data thing was was something i hadn't really appreciated and i think also that's a big issue for education because it's all very well giving you know children laptops but if they haven't got a wi-fi connection at home or sufficient wi-fi connection at home what does that mean and at the same time, we're having all these sort of broad conversations and worrying conversations of conspiracy theories about 5G and the introduction of 5G. So data has never been more available, but that must be, if you if you can't get access to it, that must just be like a kick in the teeth the, the entire time. Yeah. 
I think it's a whole rich thing to be explored as part of the digital inclusion challenge that the UK has. But, you know, I don't think you can hold it all to government. I don't think you can hold it all to industry. I think it this is a big collective challenge that we as the UK, you know, somebody said the other day, we shouldn't waste this crisis as COVID. We should actually make sure that we learn from it, we grow, we're stronger. And I think digital capabilities as a country is something that we, we should really double down on, investing in skills and in, investing in capability. And how do we compare as a country to to other countries? I know there are obviously some that are much further ahead, and you mentioned this data gifting already happening in other places. But globally, do you have an idea of, of how we stack up? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly not bottom of the pile, are we? I mean, we're you know we're a strong contender, but I suppose the challenge that we really have is the pace of which we are moving to be a a digital society and what that means for the people that we might be leaving behind and, you know, how you make sure that you don't leave anybody behind. So although, you know, I think it's really, it's good to do, I mean, good to do international comparisons. I mean, one of the things we want to do at future.now as part of our regular member pieces in the, in the next few months, we're going to do some sessions talking to, you know, learning from India, learning from Estonia, but actually I think we also just need to look inwardly and say, what, would good be for us as a country because every country is unique and and frankly to me it's not good enough that you've got nine million people that can't use a device without support in a country that is very very digitally dependent now. And what's the biggest ask from from you for the government? I mean the government's under an awful lot of pressure to do a lot of different things for different people but I read last week about the um, the taxation of broadband for example. It just seems sort of un- it seems unnecessary. Is there something that could be done to bring down the the level of VAT on broadband because I think it's classed as a yeah. luxury a luxury item rather than an essential service like gas, electricity and water. I didn't know that. That's a really interesting perspective on it. I mean, at Good Things Foundation, we just published a a digital blueprint and we're calling on government and others to help this great digital catch up. So I'd encourage anybody that was interested in it to Google and look at the the digital blueprint that we've got for Good Things. But what, what I would say is, I don't think this is something that one department in government can solve. You know, we have to really recognize what digital is to us now. And it's a golden thread. It runs through everything we do. So this is as important for the DWP as it is for DCMS, as it is for Bayes and the industrial strategy. It's every part of government. And that's, I suppose, that would be my big ask of government would be not to treat digital as a thing in a corner, but actually to look at it for the all encompassing thing that it is and really lean in and use this moment to properly invest in making the UK 100% digitally included and connected and set a really bold grand challenge for ourselves on it the work the good things have done that you know there's a really brilliant economic model behind that i think it's something like you know it's something like 29 pound a person or something to get it there roughly the cost of a doctor's appointment or something you know it's some really brilliant data there but it shouldn't just be about the economics it's also about what does this mean for for our you know, societal welfare and our, our general well-being. Just going back to that period of lockdown, you know, I know that my mental well-being was much better because I knew I had digital capability. I could order food. I could do the things that, you know, far too many Zoom them in quiz nights, re- recalling how much little knowledge I had about things that perhaps I should have known about. But, you know, all of that thing that gave me a sense of normality, it was digital that enabled me to do that. And it was just a thread through my life. And I think that that's my big ask of government, recognise it for what it is. 
Absolutely. And the, the ripple effect of being connected, as you mentioned, I mean, one of the stats that you were talking about at the start of lockdown about the frightening amount of people who were shielding, who were not able to get the, the text messages that they they needed. That was such essential information for their health. And as you say there, that link between being disenfranchised, not being able to get online and then what that would do to your mental health and well-being. Um this is such an important thing to get right, isn't it? It feels feels like a, a human right in many ways. Yeah, and I, I think increasingly we you almost I wonder if when you'll look back and you'll kind of go, how how could we have ever thought thought like that? Of course everybody has to have this. You know, going back to your point about international countries, you know, the international comparisons, different places have had different approaches. We are quite an interesting society in the UK. You know, we're not an organisation that naturally follows things. So we need to make sure that we're bringing people in a really positive way. So they're seeing the benefits of it. You can't just impose this by a stick. I've seen massive changes in people's digital motives. People that have turned around and said, well, actually, I can only go to church online. Can so can someone show me how to use Zoom or I need to go to a parish council meeting and I can't get there other than via, you know, this other digital system. So people, people that have traditionally perhaps not embraced it are suddenly seeing new meaning in it and new reasons to get on board so let's not waste the crisis let's let's capitalize on those motives and make this a real step change for the UK absolutely yeah I very much hope that the that's one of the 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 good things that comes out of this really difficult situation speaking of learning there um uh, Paul had a great question about uh, everyone's digital skills gaps Paul did you want to to ask that I'm yeah. slightly frightened now Paul no it's just, it's just one that that sort of struck me as we have these conversations sort of week in week out being a, a you know a consultant in all things digital I know that I have uh, specific weaknesses and, and things and I just wondered what's the what's your skills gap we'll share ours as well I'm happy to share ours That's only fair. Uh, My problem is you could do a whole podcast on my skills gap. I think the one thing I'd say about skills gap is everyone needs to keep learning and accept that technology always moves on. So you're never going to have all the digital skills you need. And frankly, technology never plays fair. It always brings unexpected surprises. And my my kids, I've got adult kids, um, they laugh about me being a woman in tech because Every time I can't get the television to work and I say, can someone sort out, the, you know, and, and they laugh and they go and call yourself a woman in tech. And I'm constantly challenged by the technology around me. But I also would play, turn that back and I would say, you know, don't let's assume that we're the problem. Sometimes it's the it's the people that are designing the services that aren't thinking intuitively enough about us as consumers and what our skill sets might be. So why is it when I you know have to switch from UView to cable to this to that? It's always so difficult, and each one feels quite stark. Giving my TV example, so I, I think there is something there as well about organisations really not expecting us to be that you know to bridge the, the gap but actually their ux and their their experience to be really slick so it makes it easy for us to engage but yeah i have honestly there are so many things that i'm not good at but the thing i am really good at is going online and finding something to teach me how to do the thing that at that moment i can't do and i think that's the thing that's most important for all of us because it's constantly topping up and and being inquiring about how to get the next bit of skill what's yours 
I was going to say, my, my uncle always says that. It's the one story he always brings up about me and the advice I've given him over the years where um, he said, oh, you know, Paul, I can't get something to work and I ring the boys, ring my sons and they're useless. They can't tell me or they haven't got the time to tell me. I said, well, do what I do. If somebody asks me a technical question, I go onto Google and I find the answer. It was like a revelation to him. And then suddenly he didn't you know, didn't need to contact his boys anymore because he just Googled the answer and, and got the, the approximation. So I think that's a really glib point but a pertinent point isn't it you need to have the ability to be able to do that to go or just go out and help yourself so I think that that's key it's just thinking this morning I just don't get Instagram anymore that's my biggest one I think so so my eldest is getting into uh, TikTok and keeps showing me all the videos and things he's doing on there but I used to really enjoy Instagram. That was my sort of go-to one. Every time I saw something that I wanted to take a photograph of and I thought that was nice and worth sharing, I would take a photo photo and set, share it on Instagram. And then suddenly there's stories and there's all sorts of other th- different things and boomerangs and I just don't get it anymore. So, you know. But isn't that the beauty of it? You don't have to, do you? You can choose which platforms you want to engage with. Um, and it, it's about, you know, at any one time, it, that thing might be good for you or it might not be. But I, I suppose... The other thing is, is knowing what's coming. So I, I think you're probably off Instagram and you are now probably on TikTok. That'll be a change, whether. But it's just that thing where, <laughs> yeah, yes, I can help you with your social media strategy. I can write you all the policy you want, but I'm not sure I can give you all the advice you need on Instagram. That's what I might need to bring in my learned colleague, Zoe Amar. <laughs> so what's yours, Zoe? Um, oh, well, I could fill at least another podcast, a series of podcasts about things I'd, I'd love to learn about digital and definitely, you know, uh, many gaps I would like to close as well. If I was going to pick two of them off, off the top of my head, I'm slightly scared of my printer. Every time there's a paper jam or, you know, I know there's something not quite right with it, it's making unusual whirring sounds. That is the thing about digital that actually makes me a bit panicky more than other things I do um, in digital. So, th- so that's one thing. I am scared of my printer. And then the second thing that I would really like to grow my skills, and I suspect this is a skill that's going to be really important for, for our kids, is to develop data scientist skills better. So one of the things that we're thinking about at home at the moment is, is whether we need to move house to be that bit closer to one of the secondary schools that we've got our eye on for my son. And we, I was, I was saying to my husband, actually, in order to really inform this decision, is there not a way that we could try and build some kind of model with assumptions about the birth rate? You know, we could get some of the data from ONS and then tra- look at that compared to kind of overlay some of the data that you have having uh, there's various platforms that you can get memberships to which show you whether you'd have got into certain schools year on year um, and then you'd have to make some assumptions about sibling numbers <laughs> as well um, but yes if I could build a model that would predict that then uh, you know that that's a chance of getting into the school in a few years time then yeah I'd be a, a very happy person. I think you'd also be a millionaire because people would pay for that stuff. <laughs> But, you know, you're right, though, I, you know, going back to that thing about what the skills that you turn around to your kids and say, if you're going to if you're going to be something, if you're going to have a certain set of skills, what would they, I mean, data scientists, I mean, they're going to be the rock stars of the future. I'm absolutely sure of it. They're not already. But, you know, that it's like the gold, isn't it? Data is gold and being able to interpret and play with it. That's a fantastic future skill that will mean you will earn a fortune. Brilliant. Get my kids to do that then. Yeah. <laughs> Let them choose their own yeah. schools. Well, uh, the way that children are now, they might already have a little sideline before you know it, a little online business of doing whatever. You know, who knows where they where they could be they could be uh, operating. 
Absolutely. I think a side hustle is key, isn't it? Uh, brilliant. Thank you so much, Liz. Um, we've loved talking to you. We've learned so much from it. And you've shared so many great insights about the, the challenges facing the UK at the moment and also the opportunities around digital skills. And given that we're all going to be wrestling with the pandemic for some time to come, I'm really looking forward to thinking about the role that we can all play in helping the UK build back better and get more confident in digital so thank you so much for sharing your story here today. I've loved speaking to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we'll also share details of the pledge page on, on the website because I think that's something that everyone can have a look at and, and decide what it is they're going to, to do to contribute. That'd be fantastic. Thank you. We, we can only do this together, can't we? It's no one organisation's responsibility. We want to be a digital world. We've all got to lean in on it. So um, I'd just like to thank you for shining a light on it today. It's been really good fun. Thank you, Liz. So thank you very much to Liz for what was a, a brilliant interview. And listening back to that, I was really taken by a, a number of points. But the one that I really wanted to bring out today is digital being the vehicle and not the thing. So thinking about if you need to achieve something, digital isn't the, the main conduit. It's how you can underpin and help that thing along. So I think digital helping to achieve objectives and how you position it within your organisation is, is, is really, really key. And also like the idea of identifying skills gaps within the business as early as possible so that you can address that head on. So if you are making digital changes across your organisation, that you've got the ample opportunity to, to make sure that you are addressing that issue of the skills gap right from the outset. I thought that was a fascinating point. And I also like the focus on ambition and that big question about whether enough employers are being truly ambitious enough and expecting enough from the digital skills they want to see from employees. I wonder whether there's something here about whether we need to think beyond what employees need to, to keep things taking over digitally day to day and start to be more creative and to think bigger about how even helping one member of staff to improve how they use digital can be the next building block in achieving the organisational strategy. Excellent. Well, thank you for listening through to the end of episode three of season two. We'll be back next week. Next week, we'll be talking to Carl Gombrich of the New London Interdisciplinary School. And we'll also be talking about digital skills there too. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel that you'll be doing differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, your ideas, your questions with us on Twitter. We're at Starts at the Top One. That's at Starts at the Top One. And you can email us on Starts at the Top podcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And a five-star review at that. That would be lovely. Thank you to all our listeners and we'll speak to you again soon.